0: love talk radio i'm a truth terrorist i'm a knowledge gangster i'm a black history hitman. man i'm a lie killer urban gorilla i gotta be a rough nag free to black panthers fcbp stand for free to black panthers it's up the black police that 13th amendment trying to make a slave of me you can lock like my body, can't trap my mind, not will ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FTBP stand for free the Black Panthers, F up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership rose, but we still here in the bill head of pro show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me, mad Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, it's up the Black Police That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever ever be free, okay? Free the Black Panthers, FVBP stand for free the Black Panthers, it's up the Black Police the infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles But we still here, in the bill here, Upcoin sell pro RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. Rbg. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny. Bullets that don't tolerate it, melanated, so you gotta hate it. Barack upped up, another conversation, Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn, unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party
2: amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that.
1: We need our own nation.
3: Good afternoon and welcome to the Program for Public Discourse debating public policy series. I'm Kevin Marinelli, Executive Director of the Program. The Program for Public Discourse strives to promote democratic values by fostering robust discursive practices in the classroom, across Carolina and beyond. And we do that first by engaging issues that are tough and socially significant. And second, by transcending the simplistic either or binary of politics to ask questions that are more nuanced, more complex, and frankly, more interesting. And today is no exception as we engage the issue of reparations. The concept of reparation appears to be a universal one and often hotly contested. Perhaps the most prominent example of reparations on a large scale are those paid out to victims of the Holocaust in Germany still today. Most recently, there's been talk about paying victims of uh, global climate change reparations in in the developing world as these people suffer the greatest consequences and contribute least to global climate change. In the context of the United States, uh, discussions around reparations uh, focus specifically on the legacy of American slavery. Historically, discussions around reparations have entered and then receded from the mainstream of public discourse. However, in 2014, there was a provocative essay written by ta Coates, which appeared in The Atlantic, which regalvanized momentum around reparations which was then sustained by the black lives, black lives matter movement which continues still today so today we're going to take a deeper dive into the discussion of reparations in the american context with three leading scholars on the topic our first panelist william darity jr affectionately known as sandy is the samuel du Bois cook professor of public policy african and african-american studies and economics and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as chair of the Department of African and African-American Studies and was the founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. Previously, he served as director of the Institute of African-American Research, director of the Moore Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship Program, director of the Undergraduate Honors Program in Economics, and director of graduate studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Randall Kennedy is Michael R. Klein professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He was born in Columbia, South Carolina. For his education, he attended St. Albans School, Princeton University, Oxford University, and Yale Law School. He served as law clerk for Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals, and for Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. He is a member of the Bar of the District of Columbia and the Supreme Court of the United States. And our discussion today is going to be moderated by our own Usamudia James, who joined the UNC School of Law faculty in 2021. Her writing and teaching interests include education law, race in the law, administrative law, and torts. James is the author of numerous articles, book chapters, and popular press commentary exploring the interaction of law and identity in the context of public education. Her work has appeared in NYU Law Review, the Michigan Law Review, and the Minnesota Law Review, among others, as well as in the pages of the New York Times and Washington Post. And I should also add that uh, Sandy Darity has recently published a book, which the PPD has secured copies of and will distribute at our upcoming event in the spring on affirmative action. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to hand it over to our panelists for today.
4: Thanks so much, uh, Kevin, and welcome to all our participants, whether you are joining us from far away or from someplace here on campus, we're delighted to have you. I'm also delighted to have our two discussions with us today. Hello, Professor Kennedy. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Hello, Professor Darity. Thank you for being here.
5: Thanks for having me.
4: So I want to start off with a definition. I want to jump right in. Um, and the word reparations is related to the word repair. Right? Both come from the Latin word meaning to restore. And so our conversation today is really about the viability of reparations as a way to repair racial inequality in the United States, or maybe even restore it to what it might have been if racial subordination was not so central to the sort of early development and founding of the United States. And so trying to get us all on the same page, Let's start talking about what reparations might be for. Right? I've already made a reference back to um, enslavement in the United States. What would reparations be for? Professor Darity, I'll start with you.
5: Well, let me start by attempting to define reparations. Uh, the definition that Kirsten Mullen and I use in our book, From Here to Equality, is uh, reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. So this would be a general definition that would be applicable to any instance in which there is some sort of compensatory action that needs to be taken for an atrocity or for a series of atrocities. And by acknowledgement, we mean that the culpable party admits that it has committed such a grievous injustice and simultaneously makes a commitment to engage in an act of restitution for those atrocities. The second component, redress, is the actual act of compensation, usually taking the form, when we're concerned about victimized communities, usually taking the form of some type of monetary payment, whether it's uh, the uh, payments that were made to victims of the Holocaust that were previously mentioned by Professor Marinelli, or in the US case, payments that were made to Japanese Americans who were subjected to unlawful and unjust mass incarceration during the course of World War II. And then the, the, the third component of reparations, and under our definition is closure, which is the point at which the uh, culpable party and the victimized community come to an agreement that the account has been settled. And uh, at that point, the victimized community will make no further claims for restitution on the uh, uh, from from the culpable party unless there is a renewal of the atrocities or there's a new wave of atrocities that takes place directed against them.
4: Okay. so in the United States, what might we see let's say we were making reparations to so what would reparations be responding?
5: Well, there's a host of atrocities that have been committed by the United States to which reparations could be responding. But I think in our conversation today, obviously our primary concern is about reparations for African Americans. And uh, from that standpoint, uh, reparations would be something that would be enacted for the purposes of addressing the full array of atrocities that have been directed against black Americans from slavery into the present moment. So this would include uh, the period of legal segregation in the United States, which was, uh, was which was accompanied by a wave of upwards of 100 massacres that took place all across the country. In the year 1919 alone, there were about 35 of these massacres that took place where white terrorists not only murdered black Americans, but also seized and appropriated their personal property. Uh, and then, uh, in the post uh, civil rights period, we have ongoing mass incarceration. we have uh, uh, we have police executions of unarmed blacks. We have ongoing discrimination in housing, credit and employment markets. And most significant from the standpoint of the project for reparations that I envision, is uh, the the persistence of a massive racial wealth gap which constitutes the uh, the best cumulative indicator cumulative economic indicator of the intergenerational consequences of white supremacy in the United States and so from my perspective the 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 minimum condition for a reparations program for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here is a project that would eliminate the racial wealth gap, which would require an expenditure of at least $14 trillion. Okay,
4: so I want to talk about time as a key site of contestation when we're thinking about uh, reparations. Um, Yuvar Joshi, he's the faculty member at Allard, talks about how Americans think about the past uh, his argument is that whites think about the past as past, right? So maybe Black Americans think about the past as constituting the present, and those are different lenses for thinking about how far back reparations might go. Professor Kennedy, do you have thoughts about the timeline, right, that we've already invoked in terms of what reparations would be responsive to?
0: Well,
5: well, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Did, I'm sorry. I thought I thought the question was asked to me. Am I incorrect?
4: No, I, 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 I think that, that's fine. I, I, <laughs> sure, yeah, either Professor Kennedy or Professor Barry, whoever wants to.
5: Well, speak well let me defer. Let me defer to, to Professor Kennedy. Go ahead, because he hasn't had a chance to speak yet.
6: No, I I, I'm, I, I was simply going to say that um, uh, in terms of setting a, a you know groundwork for our discussion, I'm I'm happy that in the definition. Um, segregation has been mentioned a number of times. Oftentimes when we think about, uh, you know, the reparations discussion, slavery bulks very large, and obviously it, 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 it probably should and it can. Um, I think, though, that sometimes it's useful to think about the age of segregation because the age of segregation does um you know it's 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 more recent. It's part it's part of living history. Oftentimes we think about reparations and slavery, people say, well, yeah, but you know, there are no more slaves. The slaves are dead, the slaveholders are dead. Uh, that's, you know, long, long, long ago, as if this was a time when the dinosaur roamed. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is there are millions and millions and millions of people who are alive. Who have been touched by the segregation regime, and um, I think that by talking about segregation, Boris Bittger in his book, wonderful book, you know, the case for black reparations, made a point of urging a focus on segregation to get out to, to make people think about the, you know, the the, the um, how present. The history of uh, racial oppression has been—it's not long, long ago with people who were dead. Nope, it's people who are alive with us. Uh, you know, our our parents, our siblings. The segregation regime is something that is part of um, our you know our our living memory.
5: That's the only point that I'd like to make, Professor Darity. Go 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 right ahead. Now, I, I, think, I think we're in agreement here. Uh, I, I was gonna say that the same people who say that slavery happened so long ago are frequently the same people who walk around with the trappings in the Confederacy. Uh, so uh, there's some inconsistency in terms of their view about what is past and what is not past. Uh, but I think that the important point that, that uh, Professor Kennedy's making is that it's the post-slavery period that needs to be something that is drawn fully into the picture for the case for reparations. And I would argue that it's federal policies that took place in the aftermath of slavery that have maintained and perpetuated this enormous racial wealth gap. Uh, I would start with the, uh, the point at which the formerly enslaved were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage, uh, land that they never received, while one and a half million white American families received 160-acre land grants in the Western territories under the Homestead Act uh, as the nation completed its colonial settler project in in the Western territories. Um, And uh, Trina Shanks-Williams estimates now that there are 45 million living white Americans who continue to be beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land patents. Um, In addition, as I mentioned, there were upward of 100 massacres that took place across the nation conducted by white terrorists where they seized and appropriated black-owned property. That was another mechanism for deepening the black-white wealth gap. And then in the 20th century, the federal government shifts away from land distribution as its means of asset building to home ownership and the promotion of home ownership. And it does this in a highly discriminatory fashion. We can start with the presence of restrictive covenants that are supplanted by a federal policy of redlining, which was a public-private partnership between the Federal Housing Administration and local banks. And then we had the GI Bill, where uh, the home ownership provisions in the GI Bill, the subsidies and supports for home ownership, were overwhelmingly given to returning white veterans from World War II and not given in any significant degree to returning black veterans from World War II further reinforcing the racial wealth gap. So it's a host of things that took place after slavery ended that are really critical from my standpoint in the case for reparations. But can I, I wonder, ask, can I ask, Professor Derry, listen,
6: you know, we, American history is awash in injustice. And, so, and let's just focus on for, for for now. Let's just focus on the injustice that was um, uh, imposed upon uh, African Americans. I think you know, you've, in your work, you've shown this, and you know, in your exposition, you've shown this you know, altogether clear. Here's my basic, and I'm I'm not fighting with you, frankly. I, I think yes, we, you know, this this injustice is with us. It has you know, it has current effects. My main question to to you, though, is what, how, how are we going to translate, how do we translate your sense of this tremendous injustice into working policy? Because, I mean, it's not like it's not like you can force the United States government or state governments or municipal governments to do something. You've got to persuade people to to do these things. My question to you is, how do you persuade people to you know um, channel large amounts of resources to African Americans? Even though American society is still awash in racism, I mean that's the problem that you confront how do How do you propose to
5: confront that problem? Well, I think that uh, that i'm 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 not sure that there's a good answer to your question because this is a tough one. Uh, but I will say that I think that there has been a change that has taken place in the political climate in the United States. And the ultimate question is whether or not the the recalcitrant 30% of the population that insists on preserving minority rule and is willing to actually uh, conduct a coup d'etat to try to preserve that minority rule is whether or not they will continue to exercise disproportionate power. I think that the remaining 70% of the American population is open and potentially receptive to the type of plan of restitution that that we've been describing. It's interesting to note that if you go back to the year 2000, a survey that was conducted by Ravana Popoff and Michael Dawson at the University of Chicago on American attitudes towards reparations found that 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for black Americans. If you get to the year 2021, a survey conducted at UMass Amherst now indicates that it's closer to 30% of white Americans. So that's a sea change, even if we're not at a point at which the majority of white Americans are in a position to endorse uh, black reparations. Uh, and I think it's that sea change that lies at the heart of the intense opposition that is being demonstrated by some segments of the population towards so-called critical race theory. Because I think there's a recognition that the american public is learning more and more about its true and accurate history and as a consequence will be open to an act of restitution
0: see
6: you have a more generous view of uh the american you know american public than i do i mean you 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 talk about the 30% that are recalcitrant My reading of it is, yep, you got that 30%, but you got a much larger number, uh, larger group, who say, listen, yep, uh, there was slavery, yep, there was segregation, yep, there was a lot of terrible things, but uh, world history is awash with misery, world history is awash with terrible things. I'm interested. I can imagine people saying, "I want." We can't. We can't repair all of the terrible things that have happened through history because there's just so much atrocity. What we can do, however, you know, good folks, I think, say what we can do is try to create public policy that will be helpful for those who are living and going forward. I mean, I, I, I I'm must I'm, I'm say, I, 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 don't, I don't think there's going to be much of an appetite for trying to, you know, on your level, uh, get right with the atrocities of the past because that is, there's so many atrocities, they go so deep, it's so broad, it's so overwhelming. I think people feel overwhelmed by
5: it. But there are atrocities for which reparations has been paid. So what makes the degree of damage that's been inflicted on Black Americans so exceptional that we would not attempt to make a a concerted effort to address that specific set of harms and damages?
0: we're Japanese to Americans have about
5: received reparations payments. Yeah.
0: Families
5: that lost loved ones in the course of the nine one one attacks, for which the United States government itself was not responsible, have re- received payments. And the individuals who were held hostage in Iran have received $10,000 per day in restitution, which comes to $4.4 million for the typical recipient. And the United States government didn't hold them hostage. So there are many instances in which people have been subjected to harms in which reparations have been paid. I'm not sure why you wanna make the case for black Americans continue to be the outlier of an injustice that has not been addressed by the United States government, which lies fully in the hands of the United States government. I
0: think our moderator wants to
6: break in here.
5: (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, what what we're stepping or, 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 or talking around, I think, is the social and political perceptions of African-Americans in the United States, right? And so mm-hmm. other groups might see more sympathetic politically. And I think Professor Barry is right hurt. that we are seeing shifts we're, we're shift, I mean, after the, you know, we'll call it the racial reckoning of, of the summer of 2020, actually just starts to shift thinking about what, what is the source of racial disparities and, and can we be more sympathetic to the history and experiences of Black Americans in the United States. So I think that's one aspect, right? How, how do we think about this group? Um, and I'm not sure we're going to get answers anytime soon about how to change that. But does time matter? And also does form matter? That is, if we, part of what made Ta-Nehisi Coates' piece so popular was that he started with redlining, right? He started in the 1950s and 60s, and that felt more immediate to people. So does it matter how far back? decide to think about what needs to be repaired and two does the structure or the form of reparations matter will people be uh less open to cash payouts right based in part on on stereotypes about black people and money um you know like the welfare queen stereotype comes to mind or are people going to be more open to more structural interventions like the former
5: uh, the former green bay Packers quarterback in mississippi (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
4: <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? So this is right. So it's the way we think about these terms and who it applies to is absolutely race. And so do white do Americans be more open to more structural interventions, massive school investment, changes to health care policy, better welfare policies for families? Does that matter?
6: I think all of it matters. Um, it it seems to me and, and, and to, to go back to an earlier point that you put your finger on i think that we really do have to be attentive to the continuing existence of you know racism in our polity um i think that um professor darity you're exactly correct when you when you sort of went down a list you know what what about 911 you know uh People were very quick to, you know, we got to help these people. There's an emergency. There was this tremendous emotional embrace of people who were victimized by people, you know, it, it wasn't the United States government, it was other people. You might very well have said, geez, that's really too bad, but why should I have to pay with my tax dollars for that? I can imagine people saying that, but they did not. Uh, similarly, you're exactly right. Why is it that with respect to uh, the, 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 you know, the, the struggle over um, uh, Japanese Americans and their treatment during World War II? You know, you, it was a very different sort of stance than the stance that one gets when we're talking about African Americans. Why? In part because African Americans are still stigmatized in part because they frankly there are millions of people who as soon as you say slavery there are millions of americans who actually say they might not they might not who actually think they might not say it but they actually think you know actually black people were saved from africa uh they were brought to the united states they got the benefit of becoming christianized they got the benefits of coming to the united states you know, frankly, they should thank God that uh, they're in the United States and that they're not in, let's say, Angola. Um, that is still very much a part of this discussion. The fact of the matter is that black people are still stigmatized. And part of the stigmatization is a not only an opposition to the idea of reparations, but actually a contemptuous uh, opposition. That's, that's part of our story. Now what about this as a partial response? Because it seems to me that that's there and it's sentimental not to take that into account. But what about this as a partial response? Listen, um, because of the history of racial oppression in the United States, uh, black Americans are needy in various ways. Various ways they are vividly needy.
5: What I about just say, paternalistic. Uh Can huh? you use a different term besides needy? The term is, yeah. Why? So
6: there are disparities,
4: right? There are disparities, right? As a yeah, result, I, as continue, needy, I think there are disparities.
5: Deeply paternalistic. I was, I was just hoping you... Okay, could
6: well, it. I mean... I,
5: I mean, I don't even like the term repair, actually, even though I do use the term reparations. But, okay, go ahead. <laughs> there are, there, for various reasons,
6: if you take a look at the various indicia of well-being or the opposite of, you know, or or, or disadvantage, uh, black Americans are going to be disadvantaged in, you know, practically everything you can look at from, you know, uh, lifespan to vulnerability yeah, yeah. to various disease, to vulnerability to Finance. incarceration, the whole gamut. And all of these things are tied to the history of racial oppression. I, I think we can agree on that. How about, though, you know, there, there there's a big country, black Americans are a minority. In order to Move the levers of public policy. You're going to have to have a whole lot of people. What about saying we need to push resources to those who um, need more resources? Now, it may very it's it's certainly the case that there are a lot of black Americans who need resources, but you know the fact of the matter is there are a lot of white Americans who need resources too. Why not make need the central arbiter as opposed to the history
5: of the need? So, from my perspective, reparations is not an anti-poverty program. It's Mm -hmm. a policy that should be introduced for the purposes of meeting an unmet debt. And specifically, it should be used for the purpose of eliminating the racial wealth gap in the United States, which is uh, a huge, disparity a chasm if you will between opportunity and economic security between black and white americans and it's a chasm that exists at all levels of the class distribution in the united states so for example at the upper end of the wealth distribution one quarter of white american families have an uh, a level of net worth in excess of one million dollars which is true for only four percent of black american families Uh, At the bottom end of the distribution, whites in the lowest end of the income distribution, the poorest 20% of whites, have a higher level of wealth at the median than all black Americans taken together. And so uh, this is, this is a, a profound issue that cannot be resolved by some sort of universal need-based program. And in fact, I'm strongly in favor of such universal needs-based programs. I'm an advocate of, a, of, a, of an economic bill of rights for the 21st century, which would include a federal job guarantee and the like. But I recognize that these kinds of steps would not eliminate the racial wealth gap. Universal programs will not eliminate the racial wealth gap. Indirect race-specific programs will not eliminate the racial wealth gap. People frequently talk about giving black Americans scholarships. But if you look at the data carefully, you'll find that black heads of household with a college degree have two-thirds of the net worth of white heads of households who never finished high school. This is all a function of the intergenerational transmission of wealth advantage that is held by white households in contrast with black households. I think the the last comment I'd like to make in this context is, I don't think we should be imprisoned by inaccurate and false beliefs that might be held by a significant segment of the population. As I said earlier, there's 30% of the American population that's wholly intractable. There's another 30% that now says that they favor reparations for black Americans. So the struggle has to be persuading the remaining 40% that reparations is the right thing to do. And clearly it is. And now we're at a point at which we're addressing the logistical dimensions in a detailed way. And and that's a major step beyond simply arguing over whether or not reparations is a good or a bad thing. Wouldn't you agree that
6: there's only a certain amount of uh, time, energy, resources that can be devoted to um, you know, channeling resources to various parts of the, the population? If, if that is true, don't we have to make choices about priorities? So for instance, for you, Professor Darity, if if you were put to the choice of either of, you know, um, Economic Bill of Rights, Universal Economic Bill of Rights, uh, as opposed to um, reparations for African Americans. If, if if it was a choice of which of those two things you were going to prioritize,
5: which one would you choose to prioritize? Well, well first of all, I don't want to accept the scarcity principle. Well, why not? I mean,
0: don't you? I have think we to- can do
5: both. We can absolutely do both. In in a country of 300 million people, there should be a sufficient amount of energy and effort that can be put forward to accomplish both sets of goals. However. If you we haven't done me, either one if you're asking me what to prioritize independent of the question of whether or not we have to choose one or the other yeah. i am going to prioritize reparations at this point because it's a debt that's been unpaid for close to 160 years
4: mm-hmm. is this about both professor darity you were very clear that there is a specific economic component that needs to be responded to so it doesn't just seem as if it's about a symbolic value, right? Although, in your response about there's a debt that has to be paid, there's something here that's sort of psychic, like this is owed, right? But it, it seems to me, but, that but it's, it's a, it's a that consequence.
5: Dis- it's a consequence of the intergenerational ramifications of the failure yeah. to meet that obligation in the aftermath of the Civil War, and yeah. what it has meant in terms of. The, uh, the opportunities and, and lack of economic security for living Black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States.
4: So I want to talk a little bit then about how we figure out who's eligible. Hmm. Um, you know, I think there might be places of convergence and divergence here for both of you. Uh, Professor Darity, I know you've talked about this in detail. Who would be eligible for reparations, assuming we were going to move forward with uh, policy reparations for Black Americans?
5: So it would be the descendants of the freedmen who were denied the 40-acre land grants. And so this would be uh, living black Americans whose ancestor, who have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. Uh, And so, you know, Kirsten Mullen, Mullen and I have advanced two criteria, which are related to what I just said. The first is a lineage standard. An individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. Uh, the quality of genealogical research that's been done on the African-American community is is extraordinary now. Uh, and uh, so this is something that is not uh, an impossible mission by any means. And in our book, we actually advocate that the federal government provide free genealogical services to anyone who's trying to establish a claim on those grounds. But there's a second criteria that must be met also, which we refer to as an identity standard. An individual would have to have self-reported or self-identified themselves as Black, Negro, African-American or Afro-American for at least 12 years before the adoption of a reparations plan or a study commission for reparations uh to be eligible to uh to be eligible to receive uh the benefits of this program. Can I can I push you push back
3: on
6: you a little bit on this one? Because I, I must say that this aspect of of your of your project um I find I find disturbing. Let me let me put let me
5: try to push back as, that first. as a black south carolinian you yes that in that fact
6: let's first? start there let's start there let's that's start right there. okay i'm <laughs> from i was born in 1954 in columbia south carolina it is very likely it is it's i mean I, i'd be willing to put a lot of money on this proposition that my people were enslaved in south carolina it's probably right i don't you know i i haven't done genealogical study but it's 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 very likely that my forebears were enslaved. On the other hand, I mean, there were some black South Carolinians in the age of slavery who owned slaves. Now, just suppose we did a little bit of study, and it turns out that my people were among the people who somehow got from under slavery and became enslavers if
5: if 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 that, that was that's just, that's, so, that's irrelevant from my my standpoint. It doesn't matter who the enslavers were as long as you have at least one ancestor who was enslaved, then you meet the first part of the criteria. The second part involves the question of whether or not you are currently living as somebody who is a black American. Uh, I I don't want to give reparations to people who are living as white Americans who might also have ancestors who were enslaved in the United States. But it's, it's irrelevant who the slave owners were. Okay, the can I is whether or not you had any ancestor who was enslaved in the United States? I mean, virtually all of us have white ancestors who potentially were slave owners, and that right. does not obviate the horrors that have been inflicted on people who are descendants of the persons who were freed at the end of the Civil War.
6: Okay, l- l- let me ask a so- somewhat different on the on the Ado's so Black America is a complicated polity. You know, you got you got the ones you got Black Americans like like me, um, and, and like me. I mean, I'm and like, like you. you. <laughs> what what about what about one, one thing that I have, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about though, very worried about. Um, what about uh, black people? who hail from, I don't know, Jamaica, Antigua, Nigeria,
5: et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before I get to that, let, let me be clear. Are you saying that reparations is a good idea but you want it to include other people? Or are you still hammering away at your sets of questions about the significance and importance of adopting a reparations plan?
6: I'm not, listen. Yes,
5: I mean, all your concerns seem to be logistical, ultimately. I don't think you disagree with the idea of the importance and relevance of re- reparations. Yeah, I no, I don't. You just I, keep I, asking questions about, you know, well, this would go wrong, or this might go wrong, or this can't be done quite this way.
6: Two things. Um, number one, I am, I am, I am not... I am not going to go to war against you know your project for reparations, largely because, frankly, for me, I'm I'm more into. I I prefer the 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 framework of of distributive justice as a as opposed to reparative justice. But frankly, the reparative justice route gets me much of what I want. So you know i'm not i'm I'm not going to squawk. i mean if you know if if we were talk if we were in a political philosophy seminar room, you know, maybe we would have differences. but frankly, uh you know the the, the reparationist project, as far as I can see it, largely aims at getting money and other resources to people who are in need. And to that extent, I'm with it. I do think, however, that the logistical issues really are important, and the political issues, and one thing that I have in mind, to go back to my question, I'm very afraid of uh, dividing black America uh, along lines of, well, you know, whose people were here in the, you know, it, it, before the Civil War. Is that, a, is that a concern? Should I be concerned about that? Or are you saying I ought not be concerned about that?
5: Well, I, I, I frankly, I think that type of division already exists. Uh, uh, and it's something that it requires a great deal of sensitivity to address, but it is a problem that's already present. Uh, You know, you may want to argue that the debate over reparations is aggravating that division, but the division is definitely there already.
0: Yes, Uh, and will it be aggravated? Well,
5: if, if it is aggravated by doing the right thing, then by all means aggravated. I am not worried about antagonizing individuals or groups of people as a basis for not doing the right thing okay you are always going to antagonize somebody and so the question is whether or not it is the appropriate thing to do and i want to argue that if we are talking about reparations that's associated with the descendants of the persons who were the freedmen in the aftermath of the civil war then it is appropriate to talk about them as the recipients of reparations. And here's why. The first thing that matters is the fact that it is the freedmen who were not given the 40-acre land grants. That condition does not apply to other black people across the diaspora. They do not have that United States specific experience. They may well have claims for reparations. In fact, I would argue that they do, but they don't necessarily have claims for reparations from the United States government. So if somebody is of Haitian ancestry, there definitely is a claim to be made on France that's a case where there might also be a claim to be made on the united states government mm-hmm. but if we think about the british caribbean all of those class all of those countries that now constitute independent nations like jamaica antigua uh, barbados all of them have a claim on the united kingdom and i think that's that's wholly unambiguous But it is Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here who were denied the 40-acre land grants that they were promised, who have a specific claim on the United States government. And and I, I don't see anything intrinsically divisive about that, but if some people feel provoked by that, then so be it. This is
4: a question about social costs, right? Professor Darity, you're suggesting that there might be social costs of reparations, but on balance, it's worth it. And Professor Kennedy, you might be suggesting that the social costs might not be worth it, especially if you believe there are other ways to get there. And I I think you, you, you both disagree about whether there are, in fact, other ways. So I want to flip the question, what is the social cost of not having a focused conversation or, or or a thought project or, or political movement for reparations for black Americans in the United States, right? That is, if we abandon this project um, and think we're going to do something that's broader or more universal based on uh, societal-wide disparities, what are the political and social or cultural costs there?
6: Oh, there are costs because, I mean, obviously, there are people who uh, have, have invested very strongly in a reparationist project and are going to feel wronged if that doesn't proceed. And, you know, is that a social cost? Yeah, it's a social cost, and I think it's an important one that people ought to, ought to uh, you know,
5: take in, in, into account. The, so the social cost is not purely attitudinal. It's substantive. Uh, and the most substantive consideration is the following. Uh, For 160 years, black Americans have been seeking full citizenship in the United States, and uh, it would require a reparations plan for black Americans to have the material basis for full citizenship. This contrasts a bit with the Native American community whose goal and objective, as I understand it, is primarily uh considerations of sovereignty okay. but if we are substantively concerned about the citizenship status the effective citizenship status of black americans then the only way this can be accomplished is through a full-scale reparations plan
4: after 2020 we saw you know what we could call historic protests or racial justice by 2022 i i'd say we're seeing some backlash to that and so does that does, does, does this pr- Current context provides any insights for the viability or possibility of reparations in the United States. Is it more needed than ever, or does it tell us something about how difficult the political road might be ahead for a reparations projects?
6: I think that the current, you know, uh, landscape shows us it's been difficult. Uh, and will continue to be difficult. I mean, after all, we're talking just just a couple of weeks ago, the United States Supreme Court was hearing the latest uh, uh, affirmative action case involving involving the very institution that is is helping to sponsor this wonderful forum. Now, affirmative action is a sort of it seems to me is a, in, in higher education is a very interesting. Uh, item because there it seems what we've really had is a disguised reparations project. Um, The Supreme Court of the United States basically said no you can't have racial affirmative action on explicit reparations grounds that's what that you know baki. so they came up with something else namely a diversity rationale but the diversity rationale actually that's you know that that was nominal the thing that was really pushing it was a sense that you know these people have been wronged and we need to do something to repair that i think that affirmative action at least with black americans was very largely reparations based with this diversity um This diversity cover. I think what is about to happen however is that we're about to lose that and I think that um, the pushback against a very modest, I mean good grief, the affirmative action in higher education was a very modest thing but even that modest reform is going to be, from what I can tell, taken back, and that is a sign of how um, unwelcome, how unwelcome, uh, racial reformism is, regardless of the theory that is under, you know, that is that is that is um, uh, regardless of the theory in which it is pitched.
5: So I I want to go back to my point about minority rule. And I want to argue that the existing Supreme Court is really part of the architecture of minority rule in the United States. And so that's one of the central questions as to whether or not we will restore an environment in which the majority of Americans are actually making decisions about what happens in this country. So I don't want to view the Supreme Court's decision as an indicator of widespread beliefs across the entire American population. We know that this is a court that was designed to promote the position of a minority perspective in the United States. However, that said, uh, affirmative action from my perspective is not reparations, it's not a form of reparations, it's an anti-discrimination measure. And on top of that, to the extent that it's effective. And I, I think Professor Kennedy's absolutely right that it's been applied quite modestly. Uh, if we look at the demographic composition of the faculties at the most elite universities in the United States, we can't say that a heck of a lot has really happened over the course of the past 30 years. And so, uh, so affirmative action has been modest in its impact. But if we want to think about what its implications are, if it's more effectively applied, it has an impact on income inequality, but it has very little effect on wealth inequality. And so once again, we're, we're, we're confronted with this issue of what do we do about the racial wealth gap? And affirmative action is not something that can contribute anything significant to elimination of the racial wealth gap. Oh,
3: so
4: no, we push- were talking about this. Oh, I want to go ahead, go ahead.
5: No, go, no please, please.
4: Well, I was going to say we've been talking about it a bit abstractly, and so I want to make it more focused and think about HB 40, right, as a, as a political step in, in moving towards reparations. And I'd like to know, Professor Verity, whether you support that move, what do you think the future of that move is? And, Professor Kennedy, to the extent that you've been raising concerns about how would this work, right, what do you think about just establishing um, a congressional inquiry to try to understand how would it work? Professor Verity?
5: So I think that the idea of having some form of a congressional inquiry or a presidential commission for that matter to develop and design appropriate proposals for reparations uh, is not a bad idea. Uh, It was a a strategy that was pursued as a prelude to the Japanese American reparations. There was a commission that produced a a very important report that, uh, that prompted Uh, the development of a plan of reparations for Japanese Americans and so I I don't think that that's a bad idea I do think that HR 40 is a terrible piece of legislation and so I do not view it as providing uh, a stepping stone to a comprehensive reparations plan and uh, I, I, I don't think I should elaborate at this point but I would like to refer people to uh, an editorial that Kirsten Mullen wrote for Bloomberg in which she detailed the weaknesses in HR 40 and I would encourage people to take a look at that.
6: Great. Perfect. I don't know frankly about the, you know, the, I haven't studied the, 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 the legislation to which you refer. The general idea, however, of uh, having a commission, having some, you know, deliberation about this, seems to me to be a good idea. Uh, you know, serious people have been thinking about this for a good, you know, for a, a long period of time. Uh, it, it seems to me that um, this conversation needs to be going on and uh, reinforced and facilitated, along with other uh, conversations. The thing I would say is um, we need to have honest, open discussion in which people really lay their cards on the table. And to the extent that that can be done in government, to the extent that that can be done in our universities, we should should take every opportunity um, to do that. One other point, I guess, with with Professor Darity when he's talking about the Supreme Court, I I would agree. I don't think that the Supreme Court's rulings are, you know, what the Supreme Court says is a good uh, indication of what the majority of Americans think. Having said that, however, I don't, you know, the majority of Americans, the majority of Americans may think things that are completely stupid. I don't take any solace in being with, frankly, a majority, Um, and in my view we face a, um, a, a, a public opinion that has built within it ideas that are profoundly destructive. I'm with you, Professor Darity. I think that you're absolutely right when you say, "Listen, what we have to think about is what is appropriate. We need to take into account political realities. We need to take into account maybe what a majority of people think, in terms of just you know, so that we won't be uh, so we won't be sentimental. So that we won't you know, if if we want to be realistic and pushing things forward, we have to take everything into account." But when you say that, you know, what ultimately matters is our view of what is right, on that, I would agree with you. And I think that we need to, uh, you know, have forums like this in which people really put their cards
5: uh, on the table. I would say that the existence of forums like this, which are increasing in presence, Mm -hmm. is actually another positive indicator of uh, the willingness of more and more americans to take seriously the idea of reparations when i first started working on this about 30 years ago and i was a reparation skeptic at that point uh i thought not that i didn't think reparations was a bad idea i just thought it was something that would never happen mm-hmm. and uh and and as i was asked to write uh and oh and Introduction for a volume called The Wealth of Races by an economist named Richard America. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really his name, Richard F. America. And mm-hmm. uh and and he insisted that I write the introduction despite my skepticism. Uh, and I I think there was some method in his madness because as I read the essays that were con- con- contribute contributions to that volume, I began to say to myself, well, it doesn't really matter. How hard this is going to be to to make happen it's it's so much the right thing that I'm going to uh, invest my time and energy and research skills in an effort to to try to design an appropriate program and and push for it um, and it was at that point that I said well you if you think about previous points in time, say it was eighteen seventeen in the United States, you might be convinced that slavery would never come to an end." but would that be a justification for not opposing it? And, and my answer was, of course not. It would not be a justification for not opposing it, just being pessimistic about the prospects of it happening. And so that's, that's how I got on the path to, to thinking about I, I our I
6: remind our-, our, our trajectories are interesting because I, I guess my, the trajectory of my thinking is the flip of yours okay so i think that i think that you know twenty five years ago i would have been much more uh, embracing of reparationist logic and the reparationist you know feeling uh and i think that over time i've 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 gone away from that and 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 more claimed by, like I say, um, uh, redistributionist, distributive justice, or to put it a little different way, if we have two people, if I have two people in front of me, and one person is in need because of, you know, I don't know, they, they, they just came to these shores, they just washed up on these shores, but they are in deep need. I want a polity that responds to their need. Why? Because they are in need. Now, person number two is in need as well, but their need is linked to a history of racial oppression in America. I want to know, I mean, you know, inquiring minds want to know, I want to know about the history of these two needs but what's ultimately grabbing me is the the need of both and it's 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 that issue of need that grabs me more than the issue of the history of the need and i guess what concerns me is in at least with some reparationists i get the sense that it's the it's the history of the need that actually is more important than the present sense of
5: desperate need itself. Well, again, I don't start with the scarcity principle that you're adopting, that you have to make a choice between supporting people in these two different sets of circumstances. But what I do think is it should be different types of uh of resources that should be forthcoming under each set of circumstances Uh, and uh, it's, it's not solely the historical record that's at play, it's the consequences of that historical record for the living individuals. And so from my standpoint, it's a question of justice that I'm trying to address, and uh, and and it's it's it requires an investigation of the the reasons why individuals are in the conditions that they are today. If one is trying to be concerned about uh, creating a more just and fair society.
4: So I do want to remind our participants that they can ask questions. I want to go to some of the questions now. One interesting question was about reparation proposals that had been presented to UNC for the descendants of slaves um, who were owned by the university. And for me, that's actually a question about the level at which reparations has to take place. Right? Is it possible for state or local government or smaller entities, Asheville, the city of Asheville, for example, agreed to engage in some sort of reparation work Um, you know, in that, for their town, is it possible for smaller entities to do that work, or is this something that has to be done at a federal level, something that has to be done with um, wide consensus about how to move forward?
5: It depends heavily on what the objective is, And, and since I'm committed to the view that a reparations project must be designed in such a way that it eliminates the racial wealth differential in the United States by building the assets that are possessed by black Americans to a level that is similar to the average level that is held by white Americans, then state and local initiatives are simply not going to do the trick. Uh, Individual initiatives or Private organizations' actions are not going to take turn the trick either. Uh, I think people may not fully appreciate how large a number fourteen trillion dollars is mm-hmm. so let me let me give two two illustrations that might be useful if If generous donors put one billion dollars into a fund for reparations on a monthly basis, so twelve billion dollars per annum. And and the typical university that is engaged in some act of atonement is usually talking about no more than $100 million. And most of the cities that are doing something like Evanston or Providence, Rhode Island, are talking about $10 million, okay? If, If generous donors put $1 billion into a fund on a monthly basis, it would take a millennium to get to $14 trillion, okay? If we think about the combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States, that comes to less than $5 trillion. I'm talking about a bill, again, of $14 trillion. And so it is only the federal government that has the capacity to fund a project on that scale to address a long-standing historical injustice in the United States.
4: Okay, do you have any points of convergence there or divergence? I guess my
6: question would be um, are there some are there are there some things that are so large that they are beyond our capacity to rectify? I mean, you you just talked about how how big that was, how you know, how much money. Yeah. Does this mean so, then I mean, I, I yeah. think I, frankly I kind of think of you know, um, would it be, just suppose it took everything in the United States, all assets, all assets? Would you be willing to devote all assets in the United States to the addressing of the, the,
5: you know, the the the, the victimization of African Americans? Well. You know there are people who have argued for numbers much much higher than the one that i've talked about okay. uh you know uh if you were to talk to thomas kramer at the university of connecticut he would probably say that my 14 trillion dollar figure is a low ball on the amount that would be required to close the racial wealth gap and he would say it's probably 17 to 19 trillion dollars He's also been the architect of another estimate uh, that he does not personally say should be used, but a lot of people have seized upon it, which is the amount of time that was stolen from the enslaved, uh, uh, an economic value assigned to the amount of time that was stolen from the persons who were enslaved, and that essentially 24 hours a day was, was stolen time and that estimate comes to 6.2 quadrillion dollars. I would not advocate trying to pay 6.2 quadrillion dollars to anyone, uh, in part because the inflationary consequences would be so severe that the worth of the money that you've given people would be eliminated overnight. So, uh, so yes, there is a ceiling on the amount that I would think is is justifiable, uh, but $14 trillion is manageable, given the United States government's response to the events of the Great Recession and to the pandemic. Uh, okay. so- and you would not necessarily have to pay the $14 trillion out at one time. You could do it. I wouldn't want to do it any longer than a decade, but you could spread the money out across the course of a decade. And that would be an entirely manageable project for the federal government. Okay, but, but, but you just have, con- you, but
6: you have acknowledged that manageability is part
5: of your calculus. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, right. you know, there's a famous observation that Frederick Douglass made many years ago. You know, he said it would be impossible to come up with an amount that would truly compensate the formerly enslaved for the horrors that they had been subjected to. But he said, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Mm
4: -hmm. So uh, we've had some questions about logistics. And one is, Professor Darity, do you believe that if you got the number you wanted, it would actually close that gap? And how would that gap stay closed assuming Mm -hmm. discrimination
5: endures? um i you know once again I, I I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I certainly you know am an advocate of continuing to work to eliminate discrimination, uh but the key factor that produces the racial wealth gap is the uh is the unequal intergenerational transmission of resources between black, blacks, and whites, and what a reparations plan would do of the type that i 'm describing is it would interrupt that unequal distribution of resources. So the question then is, is there some reason to think that the racial wealth gap might reopen? Uh, And there are some people who have argued that that's a possibility. Uh, I would say that's only something to worry about if in fact the reason why it reopens is because of atrocities that have been directed to, uh, against black Americans, in which case you reopen the case for reparation um and so you would have to ultimately eliminate the factors that produce the racial wealth gap to be able to have a sustainable reparations program where you could meet the third condition in our definition which is closure
4: Mm -hmm. can any thoughts about that i mean i'm already hearing you (laughs) i'm already hearing a potential uh response about the difficulty we have as americans about deciding what the source of problems are right and so how would we come to consensus that a reopened gap might be due to state sanction discrimination or racial subordination
6: no i don't i don't i don't i don't have any further to add on that point
4: <laughs> so um so we have a question about thinking about reparations as sentimental. Um, And this goes back to this question about stigma and how we think about different groups. Um, And so is there, is language like that signaling something about how we think about the, how meritorious each group is would be used words like sentimental for thinking about Holocaust survivors and their descendants, right? Or the descendants of people who were interned because they were Japanese. And this is really a question about rhetoric, right? How how important is rhetoric here? I mean, what does that tell us about the feasibility of this project?
5: Well, you know, there, there are people who have said don't use the term reparations because that uh, raises some people's hackles, find another term. And, and my response is I'm not trying to do this out of any course of deception. I want this to happen because the vast majority of Americans agree that it is something that should happen. And so we will try to persuade people with the language that is as honest as possible. Mm -hmm. I respect that
6: a great deal, Professor Darity. I really do. I I think, you know, transparency. In that spirit, let me ask you a question. What about, so how do you deal with people who have done well. Let's suppose that their folks, like my folks in South Carolina, were enslaved, but over time, for various reasons, they've done extremely well. Do they get the benefit of reparations even though they have now done extremely well?
5: Yeah, well, I I said earlier, reparations is not an anti-poverty program. It is not needs-based in terms of the criteria for eligibility. It is meant for the individuals who are the black descendants of persons who were enslaved in the United States. And so Oprah yeah, the yes, people did, yes, reparations, reparations would be too. perfectly eligible. LeBron James would be perfectly eligible. Okay. If these individuals chose not to receive reparations, then that's their discretion.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Keep in mind, when reparations was paid to victims of the Holocaust, no one asked how well they were doing financially in that moment. When reparations were paid to Japanese Americans who had been unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II, no one asked how they were doing at that particular moment. That was not a factor that was involved in providing restitution for the harms that they had been subjected to. And the fact that a living black American might be doing fairly well financially does not mean they have not been subjected to the harms of white supremacy.
6: No, it it doesn't, and I I would agree with that. Um, The thing about history is so funny. I mean, how would you deal with the person who would say, you're absolutely right, and, you know, most of the time oppression has very destructive consequences. We all know, however, that, you know, social life is funny. Um, There were some very beautiful things that were the upshot. Of uh, you know atrocity, so the blues beautiful
5: jazz, jazz blues yes,
6: and one that's exactly right, and so you know
5: what a, you know so if one were to say, um, well, I mean living does that black get Americans, in too, many of us who are living black Americans would not be here at all if it was not for the rapes that our ancestor foremothers were subjected to. So you could say that there are some things that are beneficial outcomes of atrocities, but that doesn't mean that the kinds of economic conditions and differential opportunities that are associated with the racial wealth gap is not something that affects virtually all black Americans today adversely. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm focused on. I'm not focused on the question of cultural products and the like. I'm focusing on the question of differences in the capacity to exercise full citizenship in the United States that are anchored on monetary differences in resources.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to invite each of you to get a final word about this topic before we close. Ms. Darity?
0: Um I I just first of all
5: just let me say I'm grateful for uh for this event uh for the conversation with Professor Kennedy for for your uh your active and and gracious moderation uh and that I'm hoping that it is conversations like this that continue to uh, produce an opportunity for people to think about reparations in a way in which they may not have in the past, in a more positive way that they may not have in the past. So uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to join you all in this conversation.
6: Let me echo, I'd, I'd like to echo what uh, Professor Darity uh, just said. Um, I think it's been a you know interesting and useful conversation Uh, differences have been voiced and you know people have given their best in so far as trying to address uh, their their differences. I also want to end by giving a tip of the hat uh, to Professor Darity. He has for a long period of time been focused on this subject and has very patiently and carefully sought to respond to uh, all sorts of uh, critics. And I really respect him for being so patient and so calm and so comprehensive in his efforts at responding uh, to his critics. Uh, You know, not everybody is going to agree about things, and they're going to be perfectly responsible, sensible people who are going to disagree and, you know, Intellectual, intellectual work should be about trying to persuade people based on evidence, based on argument, and I think that the Professor Darity has really been exemplary in uh, showing uh, how that's done. So I too want to thank, uh, thank our host, thank our moderator, and I very much appreciate being part uh, of this forum.
4: Well, I echo both of your sentiments, and thank you both for joining us. I also want to thank our participants for joining us tonight. Please don't forget there's the server to take out to, to fill out if you've enjoyed this programming. Um, so And a recording of this event is going to be available on YouTube. I hope you all join us again for our conversations in the future. Good night, everyone.
6: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Kirsten is a writer, a folklorist, a museum consultant, and a lecturer whose whose work focuses on race, art, history, and politics. And William is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy at Duke University. And based upon what I've seen, I would describe them as partners in justice who should be recognized as the foremost experts on reparations for Black Americans. Uh, Kirsten and William have They got their own program. They got their own run of show. So I'm going to let them do their thing. I'm going to turn my camera off for a moment. I may pop in and out and ask some questions, but I'm going to let them do their thing. thank you all for being here. And Kirsten and William, the floor is yours. Thank
3: you.
1: Thank you so much, Langston. Um, We are so appreciative of this invitation and the opportunity to speak with you and to uh, the audience that you have convened. Um, you know, across the country and and, and perhaps the world. So we were asked to talk a little bit about our origin stories and about the the origins of the book from Here Equality. And um, we both grew up in families that I would describe as race families. Uh, We used to joke in my household that race was a member of the family. It was talked about every day, almost at every meal. Uh, I grew up in segregated Texas, Fort Worth to be specific. Um, my life changed dramatically in third grade when my mother put me in um, a, a majority white parochial school. Uh, but we lived in a black community, segregated black community. Um, um, you know, this is a time when uh, in Texas, um, you know, there was work for black people, but you did not have the kind of integration, the kind of influence, the kind of authority. Um, that uh, Blacks had even in you know, the North or even other Southern cities. And, um, you know, my mother was very active politically. My grandparents were active. Uh, my grandfather was a minister. He was a, a lifelong NAACP uh, member, uh, was very uh, determined that his congregation become members of the NAACP, that they, that they not just talk, but that they act on their views uh, and their convictions. And that's something that I grew up with um I also was very aware um when I began to go to this majority white school and was invited uh into the homes of some of my white classmates that there was this tremendous uh difference in terms of the uh, sort of material um what do you call that just a, the um you know just the, the kind of lives that they were living, the material stuff of their lives. And um, you know, I came from a, a working, um, you to say, sort of upper or lower, you know, upper or lower class community. But these are hardworking folks, you know, who had two and three jobs, my mother included. Um, and so I knew that it wasn't a case of the black people I knew not working hard. You know, uh, it was not a case uh, of their not being smart. It wasn't a case that they were spending their money unwisely. Uh, but there was something fundamentally wrong. <laughs> I can remember bringing those questions to, you know, to the table, to the to the to the dinner table at my household. So, um, and then when our first child was born, uh, uh, my uh, my grandfather on my my father's side uh, said something to me that didn't really strike me at the time. Uh, when we presented our infant, uh, his great grandson, uh, he said he pronounced him the fifth generation, and I didn't quite, you know. Understand what he meant, and I didn't ask him uh, at the time what he meant. But what he was what he was referring to was the fact that he was the fifth. He was part of the fifth generation born uh, after, after slavery, slavery. and um, so on my father's side, I am the fourth generation. But on my mother's side, I'm actually the third. Uh, my maternal grandmother, uh, Harriet Tyler Farrell Mitchell. Uh, is the daughter, or, or was she? She's now deceased, but she was the daughter of, of uh, someone who had, was born enslaved. And my children knew her, you know, into their adulthood. So if you're looking at slavery from a generational um, vantage point, uh, slavery was not that far, uh, uh, not that long ago in my family. Uh, my grandmother knew her father; uh, she grew up with him, and so uh, it was not a mystery to her, uh, you know, knowing someone who had been born enslaved.
5: And in my family, on my mother's side, uh, my great grandmother was the daughter of two people who had been enslaved on Rose Hill Plantation in North Carolina, and uh, and I knew her. Uh, I think I was about eight or nine years of age when she when she finally passed. Uh, but I had had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with her in Wilson, North Carolina, particularly sitting on my grandmother's porch. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, from that standpoint, uh, I was the fourth generation from slavery and our sons the fifth. And I'm pretty much convinced that that's also the case on my father's side of the family. Although there's some uncertainty about whether or not my great grandparents were enslaved, or whether it was my great-great-grandparents. That's that's something that we haven't completely determined. But I know on my mother's side that I'm the fourth generation from slavery. So I think that's been important in terms of the way in which Kirsten and I have thought about this project. Um, I'd like to give you a more accurate story about the evolution of the book, though, uh, <laughs> The first edition of From Here to Equality was published in 2020, uh, and the second edition just last year, the paperback edition that includes a new preface. Uh, but we had been working on the book for a decade before it was finally published, uh, and that's a story unto itself. Uh, you know, I think what we we basically completely revised, revamped a couple of versions of the manuscript before we we satisfied. Uh, but the ideas in the book are, are present in a number of things that we wrote prior to that. Uh, and one, one example is the criterion for eligibility, or the criteria for eligibility, which are, are laid out explicitly in a paper that was published in 2003 in the American Economic associations proceedings and so um you know i think that the ideas that we we develop in the book are definitely present in materials that we had written before then
1: please, i mention, to your um your efforts as the um the writer of the introduction of a collection of essays on reparations yeah
5: so america. in 1989 richard america yeah and that's really his name Richard America asked me to write the preface to a book that he was editing called The Wealth of Races. And this was the collection of essays by economists who were attempting to calculate how much reparation should be paid uh, to the descendants of the enslaved. And and my reaction at the time, I was a reparation skeptic. And so my reaction at the time was, uh, well, Richard, this is never going to happen. Why are we investing our time in doing this? It's a, it's a waste of time. And, and Richard said, uh, if you want to say that after you read the materials, if you want to say that in your introductory essay, you know, feel free to do so. Uh, so I think he was somewhat prescient, and he knew uh, he knew something about what my reaction would be. And once I started reading the essays, I became so convinced that this was something that was the right thing to do, that it was really the only way to really alter the conditions that are faced by uh, living Black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States, that even if the odds were extremely long, it was something that we would have to work towards and do. And so I think my first major piece personally on reparations was the uh, the introduction to the volume that that Richard America uh, produced, and then I guess you and I did a paper together, an, an op-ed at one point mm-hmm. for the Root. That's what maybe 2008 mm-hmm. at the at the latest. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Oh, gosh, so last?
5: so I'd say there's a window of about 30 years where the mm-hmm. the two of us have been thinking about and working on these issues, and and publishing material about. it.
0: So yeah. maybe
1: we'll first swift pivot, you know, to the formal.
5: The formal presentation. presentation. Okay. <laughs>
4: okay. Yeah.
5: Okay. So, um, so, um, so Langston, you you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we came on, you mentioned uh, the effects of the of the pandemic. Uh, not only in creating your program, but also in altering the amount of time that people devote to podcasts, their attentiveness, their interest in these kinds of issues. And um, when, when our book came out in 2020, it coincided with the formal or official onset of the pandemic. I, we're convinced that the disease was present in the United States at least, Uh, by the latter part of the of 2019, but uh, but uh, we were also uh, then compelled to think about the relationship between and the arguments for reparations and so briefly uh, we're going to start our discussion this evening with a focus on the sets of arguments that have been raised in opposition to reparations. Uh, uh, But but I also want to emphasize that the relationship between reparations and COVID-19 is something that we have to pay close attention to. Uh, Excess COVID-19 black mortality, for us, reinforced the importance of reparations. We did an opinion piece for the Philadelphia Inquiry, Inquirer, that was published in April 20 uh, April on April 20th, 2020, uh, and in in that piece uh, we had we reported that In North Carolina, blacks were 22% of the state's population, but 32% of the confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 37% of the deaths from COVID-19. In Mecklenburg County, the county that includes Charlotte, North Carolina, blacks constituted about 31% of the population at that time but 44% of the cases of COVID-19 and half of the deaths from COVID-19. In the state of Louisiana, where Black Americans made up about 33% of the population, 70% of the confirmed deaths, more than twice as many people uh, in the population proportionately uh, were Black. So uh, excess mortality was attributable to Blacks being overconcentrated in occupations with high degrees of exposure to the virus, attributable to Blacks having a disproportionately high number of pre-existing conditions as a residue, a vicious residue of racial inequality in the United States. And these would include asthma, diabetes, and hypertension. Although we argue that the fundamental pre-existing condition is a resources gap which is best captured by the black-white wealth differential, wealth inequality. Blacks represent about black American descendants of U.S. slavery, represent about 12% of the population, but possess less than 2% of the nation's wealth. And that results in a gap of about $840,000 in difference in net worth between the average black and white household.
1: So we'd like to read some from From Here to Equality um, to kind of frame, you know, the argument that we're making and also to kind of help all of us get on the same page to have this conversation together. So um, we say the following, From Here to Equality draws a thick line from the nation's origins to the present. The case we build in this volume is based on all three tiers or phases of injustice, slavery, American apartheid, or Jim Crow, and the combined effects of present-day discrimination and the ongoing deprecation of Black lives. Most advocates of Black reparations have focused exclusively on the injustices of slavery as the basis for redress. Law professor Boris Bicker argued that the case for Black reparations should center solely on the harms of legalized segregation, while Roy L. Brooks, also a legal scholar, has argued that the foundation for Black reparations is, quote, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, end quote. We submit that the bill of particulars for Black reparations also must include contemporary ongoing injustices. So these are injustices resulting in barriers and penalties for the Black descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. Um, Sociologist Joe Fagan catalogs the conflicting injuries um, on Black Americans, including wage penalties, physical and psycho-emotional health wounds, and community and institutional damages. Despite the Brown, the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954, a wave of federal legislation in the 1960s and 1970s intended to eliminate legal apartheid in the United States, and the enactment of anti-discrimination laws, Blacks continue to bear the weight of American racism. That burden is manifest in labor market discrimination, grossly attenuated wealth, confinement to neighborhoods with lower levels of amenities and safety, disproportionate exposure to inferior schooling, significantly greater danger in encounters with the police and the criminal justice system writ large, and a general social disdain for the value of Black people's lives. The the legal apparatus created by the Civil Rights Revolution does little to address the complex web of harms imposed upon Black Americans today. Taken individually, any one of these three tiers of injustice, slavery, the regime of legal segregation and subordination, and current discrimination makes a powerful case for Black reparations. Taken collectively, they are impossible to ignore.
5: Uh, in our book, we attempt to offer a conceptual definition of reparations, and I'd like to share a, a passage from the book in which we uh, elaborate on what reparation should mean in general. And then we talk about its application to the specific case of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. So we say the following. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. Where African-Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case for reparations include slavery, legal segregation, or Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, A-R-C, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement, redress, and closure are components of any effective reparations project. Acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrongs by the perpetrators or beneficiaries of the injustice. For African Americans, this means the receipt of a formal apology and a commitment for redress on the part of the American people as a whole to be represented in principle by the national government. A national act of declaration that a great wrong has been committed, but beyond an apology, acknowledgement requires those who benefited from the exercise of the atrocities to recognize the advantages they gained and commit themselves to the cause of redress. Now, redress is the second component of our concept of reparations, and this involves restitution for the damages that have been incurred uh, by the the victimized community. And this would mean in the context of of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery, that uh, the federal government would make a concerted effort to eliminate the racial wealth differential in the United States. Now, we mentioned a moment ago that that comes to approximately $840,000 per household. Uh, Collectively, this would require an expenditure in excess of $14 trillion by the federal government. And we argue that that's the minimum amount that redress should take. It's similar to the way in which redress has been conducted for other victimized communities. That is to say, a direct payment to the eligible recipients, whether we're talking about the reparations plan that was provided for Japanese-Americans who were subjected to unjust incarceration during the course of World War II, or uh, the German government's payments to victims of the Holocaust. Now, the third component, closure, involves an agreement on the part of the culpable party, in this case, the United States government, and uh, the Black American population that would be eligible for reparations that the debt has been paid satisfactorily. Uh, And so at at that point, the account would be settled and uh, Black Americans would proceed uh to not make any further claims on the United States government for compensation unless unless there is a renewal of the atrocities or new types of atrocities are directed against that community.
1: So we want to talk a bit briefly about some of the um some of the claims that people make uh you know, in opposition for, uh, to reparations and um you know, one of those that we here frequently is, uh, well, first of all, just this whole concept, this whole question, this notion of slavery reparations. Um, I mean, as we've said, we're not talking simply about slavery. I mean, slavery is the whole thing from which everything, you know, it's a, uh, you know, which everything, uh, the catalyst from which everything sprung. But we're talking not just about slavery, but also about, you know, a hundred years, you know, nearly a hundred years of legal segregation and white terror campaigns. And also about, you know, all of the injustices, all the atrocities and harms that are, are still happening today. It's not as if we've ever reached the point where where um,
5: those kinds of atrocities ceased. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the second edition, mm-hmm. we had used the language reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And we changed it in the second edition to conciliation. Exactly. Because there was never any previous moment of right. uh uh, of conciliation between uh, between Blacks and whites in the United States. I mean, we're talking
1: about the fact that Black people have never been fully admitted as citizens in this country. And that is something that could have happened at the end of the Civil War, at uh, the point of emancipation, but it did not. Uh, and it actually has not happened uh, to this day. Uh, but another point of opposition that I'd like to discuss briefly, uh, we hear, you know, people say, well, why didn't white America or America in general – Uh, Or didn't white America or white American general already pay its debt for slavery in blood by waging the Civil War, which resulted in emancipation? Um, You know, we, you know, some of you may be aware that, um, um, you know, then House GOP uh, coverage chair Mike Pence said, this was in 2009, I don't believe there should be reparations. You know, then then he identifies himself uh, as a student of American history. Uh, and asserts that quote well, reparations were paid in the lives of 600,000 Americans who fell on both sides in the Civil War. Well, Pence fails to acknowledge that nearly half of those people fighting the Confederates were fighting to maintain slavery, <laughs> not to end it. Um, enslaved by people were free not because of white not because white Confederates uh, liberated them. They were freed because the Union military forces, which included more than 100,000. Black men and women won the war. Um, some contend that Blacks already had received um, reparations in the form of Obama, uh, Barack Obama's election as the 44th president of the United States. Um, you had Pence and a Senate majority uh, leader, then Mitch McConnell, making this claim uh, at the same time, time time period. Even the majority of white Americans voted against Obama, 39% of whites compared with 19% of Blacks and 71% of Latinx. If by black reparations you mean the elimination of a huge gulf in black-white wealth, which we do advise, Obama's election for all of its salutary effects did not significantly move that needle. Um, you know, you had, uh, again, Mike Pence talking about, uh, you know, Republican policy initiatives with regards to economics and health care and energy issues. Uh, but in fact, none of this translated into uh, material advantages or full citizenship for Black people. Um, So back to this notion that slavery was not so long ago. Um, You know, we memorialize plantations across the American South. It's a very big business, Um, wedding destinations, family unions. You know, all too often, the central essential Black presence on those plantations is downplayed, or the institution of slavery is described as benign or that blacks were delighted by the association. Uh, This notion that slavery is not so distant falls away when one looks at the institution from a generational standpoint. Um, We include um, uh, stories uh, from one of our favorite uh, uh, consultants, Hortense McClinton, um, who is the daughter of an enslaved person. So this is a living person. She's what, 104?
5: She's 104 104
1: years old now. Uh, We spoke to her about 10 days ago on the phone. She had called us to discuss, uh, you know, some of the recent uh, events related to the um, the January 6th uh, congressional hearing. Um, But, yes, her father, Sebron James King, was an infant when slavery ended. So he was born enslaved. Yeah,
5: he was Uh, born in January uh,
1: 1865. Right. Um, But, you know, she is one of at least four people that we learned about over the course of researching from heritage equality who were the children of people who were enslaved, including my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother. Um, you know, another uh, of these 21st century children of enslaved black Americans is Ruth Odom Bonner, whose father Elijah Odom was born enslaved in Mississippi and later would become a physician. Um, his daughter Ruth became active in the civil rights movement in her hometown of Cleveland. Um we remember her because the Smithsonian Institution and then President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama invited her and members of their family, three generations of their family, to ring the Freedom Bell as a dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture in September 2016. Um, that bell had originally graced Williamsburg, Virginia's first um, Baptist Church, which was founded by blacks in seventeen seventy six, quote, in defiance of local law, end quote. But you know, if we wait long enough. All Black Americans whose parents were enslaved and all who lived through nearly 100 years of racial apartheid in this country will have died. Um, But the atrocities keep coming, and that is why we need a program of reparations for Black Americans.
5: Yeah, We think that these atrocities are well encapsulated in um, measures of the devaluation of Black lives. And so there's a section of the book in which we actually attempt to provide numerical estimates of the magnitude of the devaluation of Black lives. So folks in the Black Lives Matter movement could have taken a further step by actually attempting to demonstrate what the measurable values are of the magnitude at which Black lives have been discounted in American society. Uh, So let, 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 let me share again from the text. There are a number of ways in which numerical estimates can be placed on the differential value assigned to black versus white lives in the United States. For example, as early as the 1840s, New York life typically insured whites for anywhere from 1,000 to $5,000, while enslaved blacks typically were insured on behalf of their owners for no more than $400 and sometimes for as little as $200. It has been estimated that in 1928, there was one hospital bed for every 139 white Americans, but only one for every 1,941 black Americans indicating that the average black life was worth only 7% of the average white life. During the Jim Crow years, when the dual system of schooling operated, the gap in per-pupil expenditures provides a powerful index of the magnitude of the discount rate on black lives. For example, in 1939 to 1940, per-pupil expenditures for white students in most of the southern states were three times more than they were for black students, suggesting that a young black life was worth about 30% of a young white life. In Mississippi, per pupil expenditures were seven times greater, suggesting that in Mississippi at that time, a young black life was worth 15% of a young white life in Alabama in 1912 and Kirsten discovered this uh the document with this this evidence in it and in a California Mm
1: -hmm. California African American um
5: in Los Angeles in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. so in Alabama in 1912 a cluster of counties spent 32 cents on black students education per every $15 spent on white students' education, implying that a white youth's life was deemed to be worth an incredible 4,700% more than a black youth's life. Today, the estimated difference in spending per black and white student is reduced substantially, although a 13% gap remains. Unfortunately, the narrowing of the spending gap disguises a profound racial gap in curriculum and instruction in a world of desegregated schools. The disparity in the rate of placement of Black students in gifted and talented programs provides a marked indicator of the devaluation of Black youth in the nation's educational system. Black and Latinx students constitute 40% of America's public school students, but only 26% of the students enrolled in gifted and talented programs, the average Black child is 66% less likely to be referred for gifted math and reading than their white classmates. A final indicator that we discuss of the devaluation of Black lives concerns the rates at which Uh, Black men are killed by the police relative to the rates at which white men are killed by the police. And black men are killed at three times the rate of white men in each year, implying once again that black lives are worth one-third of white lives.
1: Do you want to talk a bit about the police about black prosperity?
5: Yes. Okay. That's a good suggestion. Uh, yeah, there's uh, maybe maybe you should read this section of the book. But uh, the American public, when, when we talk about the importance of the racial wealth gap, it's also valuable to note that the American public has no idea how large that gap is. In fact, the American public generally doesn't have any idea how large the disparities are between blacks and whites. So there are many, many Americans who are walking around on the assumption that uh, either blacks have caught up with whites, or are actually doing better than whites on most of the material indicators that are relevant to the quality of our lives.
1: Yeah. Um, I think maybe we should try to conclude, include some other um, claims, some other forms of opposition in, oh. in the in the interest of time. Okay. Okay. So you know one of the, the problems. Uh, In addition to the federal government's um, uh, decision to renege on those 40-acre land grants that were promised to the newly emancipated white people at the end of the Civil War, um, while simultaneously providing 160-acre land grants to white Americans, uh, including uh, recent immigrants from Europe. So basically, the federal government was investing in the wealth of white Americans while actively uh, de-investing in the wealth of black people. Uh, so not only did the federal government uh, not make good on its promise to give Black people a leg up, you know, to give them a grub stake, uh, to help them along that road to full citizenship, um, it also did not uh, punish the traitors, it did not punish the rebels, it did not punish the secessionists uh, as uh, initially um, was expected, um, and so we want to uh, want to read a little bit more from our book. Uh, from here equality and talk about, you know, what the radicals, the radical Republicans uh, expected, and indeed what many, many of the Southerners expected, you know, the defeated South, uh, what they expected in terms of the requirements for them to be readmitted to the Union. Um, So the radicals, uh, we say from here equality, in Lincoln's party had no compunction about labeling the rebels as traitors. Uh, The radical Republicans were seeking a comprehensive, and this is our term, deconfederatization of the American South. Uh, I quote uh, the radicals, abolish, yes, abolish everything on the face of the earth but this union. Free every state, slay every traitor, burn every rebel mansion. If these things be necessary to preserve this temple of freedom to the world and to our posterity." So this was the rallying cry of Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, He was the conscience of the radicals, uh, and this is what he, uh, the argument that he raised during the speech he gave when he won renomination for his congressional seat in 1862. Um, But there have been numerous incidences um, where, you know, um, Southern American soldiers, and not just Southerners, uh, Northerners as well, have flown the Confederate flag uh, in the 20th and 21st century battle sites in Vietnam, the Gulf War, Iraq. Um, you know, the flag, you know, until recently was quite ubiquitous in many public places. And some of you may have seen, you know, no small number of individuals who uh, stormed the the Capitol on January 6, 2021, uh, carrying Confederate flags and wearing um, Confederate insignia. Um, so, you know, this, this, is, um, this is infatuation with the Confederacy is very much with us. And this is very different from what you see uh, in Germany, for example, um, where, uh, you know, it, it did not happen immediately, um, you know, where the government decided that they needed to, uh, to censor the Nazis and to remove from public spaces the symbols of Nazism. Uh, but that it, it hasn't happened here yet. Um, you know, we haven't had a, a, a movement to this day to um, to say that this is not who we are as Americans. This is not where our values lie. Uh, in fact, our actions, uh, you know, basically say the opposite that we value the Confederacy, that we that this lost cause ideology is something that all of us share, which are absolutely not true. But until we have a formal, official. Um, you know, um, removal Mm
3: -hmm.
1: of these uh, symbols uh, when we are no longer talking about these people as patriots, we are no longer memorializing them uh, as heroes, Uh, you know, then and only then will we be able to move, uh,
5: you know, in a positive direction in terms of full citizenship for Black Americans and U.S. slavery. Uh, to conclude our presentation, I think it's important to say that if you can imagine a future, that's an important step on creating in creating that future. And so one of the tasks of our book was to provide a plan for reparations so that we could aid in the process of building that imagined future and bring it into fruition. So we think reparations for Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States is achievable, and it is just as important today as it was at the end of the Civil War. And so as a consequence, we'd like to point uh, those of you who are in the audience and other folks who will listen to this uh, podcast in the future to Chapter 13 of our book, where we outline how reparations can be done and how reparations should be done. And we'll also like to refer you to the preface for the new paperback edition of the book, where we also present a more compact version of our plan that we discussed in Chapter 13, and where we also reject H.R. 40 as a route to true reparations, and we reject this wave of piecemeal local reparations initiatives, and we put reparations in air quotes here as a route to true reparations.
1: So we welcome your, your questions and comments.
5: All right, everybody. So uh,
2: Kirsten and William, thank you again for coming. I want to open this opportunity to folks in the audience who have questions. Um, there's one in particular. I, I believe the brother's name is Craig who wrote it and he talked about uh a skit that what's, what's the comedian's name? Patrice O'Neal did years ago before he passed away, where he talked about how, you know, black folks shouldn't have to pay taxes. And maybe that should be a form of reparation. And I remember back in high school I had a great teacher, Miss Sachs, who taught this multicultural studies course. And we had a debate about this in my class. Like how should you know, reparations occur. And I was like, yo, I don't want to ever pay taxes ever again. And I actually think we had a technology to do it. So I would like to get you all's thoughts on um, another argument or proposal for, you know, our reparations being that, you know, Black folks maybe not having to pay tax or the descendants of slaves in the United States not having to pay taxes, uh, I would say, in perpetuity.
5: So that would not be adequate to eliminate the racial wealth gap. And that's because our tax burden, particularly at the federal level, is tied to our income levels. And our income is uh, reduced discriminatorily uh, by the way in which structural racism operates in this society. And there are a significant number of Black people whose incomes are so low they yes. don't have any tax obligation whatsoever. So they would receive absolutely nothing from a reparations scheme of that type.
1: That's about
5: 40%. That's right. right. 40% That's right. All Black people who don't earn enough uh, that, to, even to pay, pay taxes. taxes. So, uh, so, so we do think that the monies that people receive under a reparations plan should be tax-free. But we don't think uh, a a zero-tax policy for Black Americans is a way in which reparations should be delivered.
2: And Danica Carey has a question about getting – how do you get – how do you get – I'm going to quote her directly, okay? She says, it sounds like reparations are tied to the country being an agreement and acknowledgement and a willingness to change what do you feel are the strongest steps and movements towards getting the country to collectively acknowledge and being willing to change? Or is that even necessary?
1: No, oh, it definitely it's, is it's necessary. necessary. <laughs> <laughs> definitely is necessary. White people can't make reparations happen uh, by themselves. If, if that were the case, it would have already happened. Right. Sure. Um,